1: It's Thursday, and it's time to welcome you to Waypoints, where the Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment that's been inspiring and provoking us lately. Gathered around the table this Thursday, we've got Patrick Klopick, hello, Danielle Riendo, hi, and Austin Walker, hello. We're in bunk. We're in the bunker.
2: We're back in the bunk. It's like my first week all over again.
3: Yeah, we are. We've been shuffled. We're in a bunker. <laughs> I hope it brings a different good energy.
2: Early waypoint energy.
3: Early waypoint energy. Yeah. Uh-oh. Vice
0: Gaming's new podcast. <laughs>
3: Vice.
2: Yeah. Yes. Vice City. Remember the notes were always Vice City they podcasting. They are. That. Oh my god, you're right. They are. Yeah. But it's called not on this Google one. Docs.
3: This is a different one.
2: Yeah.
1: So speaking of uh, hidden things hidden in bunkers, uh, <laughs> yeah, dark, dark buried secrets. Uh, uh-huh. This week the the literary world uh, was kind of. Uh, shocked at least. Well, were they shocked? Uh, A a minor literary scandal became a bit of a national scandal uh, when The New Yorker published a profile of suspense author Dan Mallory in an article called A Suspense Novelist's Trail of Deception, uh, written by Ian Parker. Austin, this was your waypoint. Uh, Why don't you give us the precis of this, and why is this such a compelling story? (laughs) totally so i mean
3: the the thing to the thing oh boy where do, where do so we so many we go? things right. Yeah. <laughs> so the reason I, I pulled this was because we had such a fun time talking about billy in our fire segment last week uh and i'm in a mode where i'm very interested in frauds and in people who i'm very interested in frauds in the systems that allow them and to be fraudulent and reward them for their their charm um this is a story about a uh, a person who has been in the publishing world for quite some time who climbed the sort of ranks of publishing through by being a good conversationalist and a and a wild liar someone who constantly uh, and and almost openly lied about his situation uh, claiming that his that he at one point had brain cancer, claiming that he'd lost various family members to various illnesses, uh, and then and then would literally get up and and give talks about the value of lying on your own behalf, effectively, right? But uh, the the value of telling a good story in your own life, not just in the world world of literature. Um, to the side of that, as he's climbing the the ranks and going from publishing house to publishing house, and you know writing jacket copy and uh, you know kind of uh, doing some, some uh, book selection and working with authors and doing some edits. Uh, he also, under a pen name, uh, ended up writing a, a, a thriller called The Woman in the Window, um, which uh, was a number one best-selling book, is being turned into a movie, uh, has you know just gotten reprinted in the UK and immediately sold out again. And so he was this rising literary star with a bit of an open secret in the publishing world, which is he is a jackass who you can never trust. And for me, the thing that, that pulled me through this story was the idea that this was not corrected. Um, everyone involved, not everyone, there was a, the kind of two categories of people. Some people bought the every line he said, hook line and sinker. Whether that was in uh, a a um, an entry uh, essay or a, a you know a sort of a, a letter uh, sent to a school to try to get into their PhD program, uh, or it was uh, a, a various very open and obvious lie about a brother he didn't have, or about <laughs> a school, Jake, yeah. or about a school he did not go to. Um, and if you were in that former camp, I can forgive you for your naivete, right? There is a boldness to some of these fibs that are through the fucking like ceiling in terms of their ridiculousness that someone would never lie about.
2: Yeah, who lies about their mother dying of cancer? Right, or like, about who lies having about brain cancer? Yes, yeah. It's
3: like, wow, okay, I guess I, I, I can't say you're a liar. Right. Um, on the other hand, there are a lot of people who did not, and I'm not even I'm not dragging them here. Um, there are a lot of people who knew not to work with him, who uh, avoided him. Um but who could never quite oust him uh from their their uh their periphery, and sometimes it's because they were not in positions of power, but sometimes it was it seemed simply because they just couldn't like get together the political will in inside of the kind of cultural capital the social capital in those spaces to get rid of this this complete fraud um and that is fascinating to me, and I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why it's fascinating to me, and we can get into that stuff as we continue. But that's the that's the quick high level of what this story is, ending with his own novel seemingly bites off of uh, a number of other thriller uh, thriller inspiration, some of which is some of which he he uh, has obviously acknowledged. He's someone who, ironically, or maybe more apropos, is as a student of the talented Mister Mister Ripley and and the Ripley uh, line of books. Uh, which is about a famous impostor, um, but there are also a number of works that that he kind of chomped, seemingly chomped without any recognition given, um, and it's not quite to the line of uh, plagiarism, but the inspiration is seems clear. Um, I would be careful about what I'm you know alleging, but like it, it as, a, as a from like an analytical perspective, the the story we read made the case that there were some unacknowledged uh, inspirations in this best selling novel.
2: And and I think allusions to an idea that he even is telling his own story in yes. some ways is some sociopathic ways, some pathological liar yeah. ways. Some of that is sort of in the story that he's written as well. So it's almost kind of it, not sort of straight out alleging that, oh, this is his life story in any kind of way, but right. that he is using how much he's a horrible fraud and liar and a person who lies about really terrible things to do his storytelling.
3: Yes yeah uh to the degree that his one of the the writers he works with uh Sophie, what's her last name sophie Hannah, Hannah yes. who has taken over the agatha christie kind of line of of books uh like officially that she's like the official successor to christie um is is writing a book that is about him you, basically. basically uh it's so about this
1: is... it's so weird. <laughs> So this is a weird thing because it also now sounds like his second book is about Sophie Hanna Mm -hmm. investigating and writing about him. So there's a lot of weird – this is a profoundly strange story. Like Summaries don't fully give it justice because on the one hand, you have the very simple story of this is somebody who invented a backstory for himself repeatedly for different employers – uh, use that to get credentials and access to things that otherwise he wouldn't have, uh, you know, made it through the door. Uh, but then within that, there are just the bizarre and reckless lies to—I don't know—give himself time off. Uh, I have no idea. Right. Like there's points where he vanishes for extended periods uh, to have high-risk surgery for conditions he does not have, um, and then there's this weird subplot: his relationship with this author, Sophie Hannah who credits him for being a hell of a good literary editor. Uh, And indeed, like throughout a lot of this, it sounds like the guy might actually be quite effective as a literary editor and deal maker. Uh, He might genuinely be good at that. Sophie Hanna says she has enjoyed working with him, uh, (laughs) that he's always given great feedback. But then one of her books is about a figure exactly like him. Uh, you know, a pathological liar, kind of a a, a sinister uh, Mr. Ripley-like manipulator. The other weird thing is, uh, the uh, New Yorker author here, Ian uh, Ian Parker, unearthed the, the fact that at one point Sophie Hanna um, was blogging about there was something going on in her life where she had to hire an investigator to mm-hmm, look into yep. a situation, and the author, like Parker, asked, like, "What well, was this? A, were you were you investigating?" Uh, were you investigating uh, Dan Mallory? And Hannah's like, no, uh, I was investigating a, uh, a a local graffiti hooligan. Uh, that's why I had a, a private detective. So flash forward and to I, the- And the, the I don't want to ask my husband to look up the emails. It's just so much work. Oh my so God. So go to the kicker of this article. Dan Mallory is working on a second book about- a woman who investigates a character, like, a woman who, like, steals the life story of someone a lot like him and, like, begins digging into his past. God. Uh, like, there is a weird, like, symbiosis of these two, like, kind of recognizing what they are to each other. <laughs> and then agreeing, and this sort of seems like the, the issue writ large, and then agreeing it's to nobody's benefit. To really raise a stink about this, and that's right. how this guy has survived.
2: Oh yeah, there's so much of this that is uh, to to talk about. Reading this, I was deeply uncomfortable, uh, and sort of recognizing, of course, the Billy McFarland uh, sort of similarities, but also recognizing the similarities to Stan. Remember the the burger, the best burger yeah. in America, guy. Yeah. Like the amount to which rich white guys or charming white guys get away with stuff, fail upwards, are allowed to be horrible people in so many ways because they're a good at their job or b charming uh, in the ways in which other people, other types of people don't get that benefit of a doubt. Just made me deeply uncomfortable and kind of angry while reading this. Like I was amused on some level about the shenanigans of this, right? Right. About the story within the story within the story. Uh, And on another level, I was just sort of like this fucking asshole. Nobody else gets away with this kind of stuff. This is a guy (laughs) who like
3: goes to England and plays up being hyper American and comes back to the States with a fake British accent yes, uh, and lots of, and then like, in his book mannerisms. refers
0: to the yes. male person as a postman instead of oh, like, like oh, that Jesus. little detail. I mean, the, the, the yeah. story is full of like really sharp little details that it doesn't call out. It just sort of like, lets sit there and mm-hmm. yeah. the reader gets to unpack them. But like that, that specific detail was so interesting <laughs> um, that in like in his, you know, in, in in the in the book that he's now famous for like he he mixes that little bit up in his obsession with coming back with with an accident it's just mm just beautiful well like
3: that's the <laughs> there's this entire subplot that Rob uh uh you know gestured out of a moment ago which is there is a, a period of weeks where he just stops going to the to the office he has a job at uh, little brown which is a I believe it was that he was at little brown at the time which is a a book publisher uh here in New York and he just stopped Coming to work, and people are like, "Where is he? What's going on?" And so suddenly, uh, some people got an email from someone named Jake, who was reportedly uh, his brother. Uh, I think he does have a, a brother named Jake, right? For Jake real. exists. Jake yes. exists. There's an Instagram account he, to they, prove they, that Jake exists. Yes, yeah. but he gets. Uh, they get an email from from Jake uh, that that says like, "Oh yeah, he has to go for uh, uh, experimental surgery. He has a tumor. High risk factors." And all of the emails do this thing that only Dan does, which is he writes E dot mail. Like <laughs> I'll send you an E and then a dot and mail. And it's filled with all of these other things that are similar, like classic Dan isms, right? Mallory isms where, you know, he'll say that he's looking forward to, to being fitted with a spinal fluid drain. And that this will render him half man, half machine. A thing that then he says again, as Dan later, um, all of these just little stylings and, like, like uh, turns of phrase that reveal that it's him. And it's like, is he not even good at this? Is he a scam artist who is mostly getting by, by the fact that when you have lunch with him, you walk away feeling like you had a good time? Because that is the vibe I got. Yeah.
0: Which is also, he writes really charming. Like, he got jobs based on writing really good emails, which is like mentioned yes, multiple lo- <laughs> times. Is that like his e dot mails? You know, e like dot his, mails yes. <laughs> yes, correct. Uh, but like, there, there are like multiple jobs in which, like, his, uh, uh, his resume is basically either email exchanges or like, I don't know, printouts of emails. Like, it's not always clear, like, what like, are the e, like, the e dot uh, mails that he has with people the equivalent of going on like a, a fancy lunch? Um, in which right. you are then charmed by the person, it's really strange. Also interesting.
3: I read that section. There's a, it's like early on in this piece where they identify him as like a good email writer and it, like, and maybe this is part of his, his weapon. <laughs> what does that mean? I felt <laughs> What does that bad. mean? Uh huh. What's that mean? Well, like this is what my thought was like, fuck. I'm so bad at email. I wish I was a good email writer. <laughs> like I, I wish people in my in my periphery were like Austin Walker. He writes a good email, and and like I'm taking it, which, which I think it's but, like okay. Go ahead, Rob. But Rob, the, you say the this. good
1: the good emails the, the, when we get a glimpse of them, yes. they're not good emails. No. They're these ingratiating, unctuous, obvious fabricate like not yes. fabrications, but like the stories that Brother Jake writes. Are all, you know, the fucking after after peace, gets,
3: brother Jake, <laughs> by the way,
1: uh, you know, the story like Reagan, honey, I forgot to duck is he got sh- after getting shot that whole like, oh, he's yeah. cracking jokes on his way into the emergency room. Uh, it's like that, but cranked up to 11. Like every yeah. email from Jake is like, damn, he's just the best guy. My brother's so funny and witty. Uh, he's just—he's just, he's just uh, obviously at death's door, but he's still cracking wise and also mentoring uh, sick children in the onco- uh, in the uh, juvenile oncology ward. He, uh, his, and like
3: it's—he's like an MC, is the way he reads to me. He's like the MC at like a fancy like charity event who is not even the talent. He's about to introduce the talent, but he does that very well. That is the sense of humor he has and the sense of like character that comes through with the bits that you've gotten from him but i guess like one is this just representative of a publishing of the publishing world of you know they, they talk about it's a soft industry or at least it was a soft industry in the sense that it's not a lot of hard qualifications you're not getting hired for the job because you have you know launched certain number of books or that you have a specific set of of great you know uh, particular um, statistics on your side or or here's a, a project that you're really proud of. Or that
2: PhD from Oxford. Or that PhD from which Oxford. Doesn't which he doesn't actually even have.
3: Even, yeah, which he doesn't even actually have. Yeah. You're getting hired because you, you're you a good fit. Uh, because someone can imagine you doing good work there. And at least, that's sorry, that is at least the picture that Ian Parker paints here inside of
1: well, this. Well, nah, no, I mean, I I feel like the the picture that gets painted is once you're in the door, it's a soft feel. Mm. It's a lot of results-oriented stuff. And like, look, are you good... Are you good at the uh at the restaurant table? Are you good at right, closing yeah. deals at the bar? Like right, once yeah. you're in the door, there's that. But to get in, to access this like level of the industry, he absolutely traded on academic credentials, which he doesn't have. And he also opened the door to those academic credentials by also, again, falsifying <laughs> his past. Like once again, this is a guy who figured out there's nothing very distinguishing in his in his life story. So he invented one that would make his Record of being kind of an interchangeable white guy, uh, more interesting to the various gatekeepers that that pop up in academia and and publishing. Um, I don't know, which reminded me a lot of, uh, you know, Danielle, you're talking about uh, the 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 Oregon Burger guy. What this reminded me of is uh, CB sibolsky the uh, yeah. editor in chief of mm. Marvel right now. Okay, uh, yep. who. Yep. After oh, being right, promoted, dude, oh. right. After being promoted to the head of Marvel Comics, effectively, like the actual comics publishing arm of Marvel, um, it was revealed that he had written a lot of comics under a pen name, Akira Yoshida. Yes. And the <laughs> comics the comics he had written were basically what if Marvel Comics but Japanese. Oh god. And he then traded to in order to write had the authority to write those pieces and in order to sell those pieces uh to Marvel, um he invented this persona, Akira Yoshida, a Japanese comics writer uh who just like wanted to to do this and he he created sort of an alter an alter ego for himself uh as a Japanese man writing comics uh right. set in Japan about Marvel heroes. Also, just side note, he already had his in at Marvel. He was already an editor at Marvel. Uh, the thing he was doing here was skirting Marvel's ban against having editors write—not ban, but like Marvel doesn't encourage editors to write comics. And if you do write a comic, you're not getting paid for writing it. That's coming like that's just going to be happening alongside your salary for being an editor. Sobolski, via this um, via this alter ego. Collected payment for writing these comics uh, as a Japanese guy who he actually wasn't, oh, and a lot of people like covered for this fabrication, like there were senior people at Marvel. most people never met a Kiryoshita because he didn't exist. There right. were senior people at Marvel who sold the lie and were like, "I just had lunch with a Kiryoshita. What a brilliant creator Like God, there was deceit there as well, and once he made it to the top, and this was exposed. The reaction from Marvel from Sibolsky was kind of like, "Ah, eh, why are you making such a big deal out of it?" He's a good editor, you know. He is where he is.
3: Yeah, I mean, like there was the specific quote. I mean, this is from an Atlantic piece. There's an Atlantic piece called "The Secret Identity of uh, of a Marvel Comics Editor" by uh, Ashra El-, uh, Elbin, El Elbine. Elbine um, that is uh, that has a a interview with an academic here. Um, uh, much of Yoshida's work falls under that umbrella, says Kelly uh, Kaniyama. The comics, and cri- the comics critic and scholar, uh, quote, Sobolski presented the vision of, of Japanese culture that was just, just different enough to seem exotic, but that, but that aligned with Western biases about what Japanese culture and Japanese people were really like, she told The Atlantic. Marvel executives told Bleeding Cool that Yoshida had stood out for his apparent ability to write, quote, well for an American audience, something that the company had struggled with in the past when seeking authentic voices. Wow. Which is to say, what they wanted was someone with a Japanese name but who wrote like Westerners wrote, who quote unquote Westerners wrote. Yeah. Someone who wrote authentically about Japan, but but in line with the cultural fit of Marvel writers and Marvel's voice in general, um, which is to say not, not really authentic voices who are bringing perspectives that are not already represented by corporate American kind of literary uh, uh, standards, even comic literary standards. And for me, to bring this back into the Mallory conversation, there ends up being the question of biases like uh, institutional biases, it goes back to what Danielle was saying, which is there are lots of thriller writers out there. <laughs> Plenty of them are not writing great material. Like I don't want to paint the picture that like every you could go onto onto a website, Amazon.com, or go into a bookstore and go to the thriller section. And anything you pull would be an A plus hit. But to some degree, it's so hard to to know that this person got got into a position of uh, of wealth and power through a long history of fabrication and specifically which is what i think rob was getting at the fabricate a fabricated story about his own abuse about uh, a history in which he was uh you know oppressed or, or he was he went through shit he went through uh just personal tragedy and it's not his fucking tragedy to play with like it, you know obviously i'm speaking from a very particular place but i grew up with a mom who had brain surgery like i know what it's like to be like six years old and have your mom sit you down and say, I might die. Like they're going to put a drill in my skull to fix me. I might not wake up from it. Like, sorry, Dan, that's not your story to tell. Uh it is, it is, and it's certainly not your story to not tell. It's not your story to be like, yeah, this thing happened to me. Uh anyway, it's super important. Get me into your school. That's it. I'm done. Like, ugh. It was like such a, a frustrating thing because I know there are other authors out there for whom they don't have the advantages he's gotten on on the backs of Sometimes their stories.
2: Yeah, I, I have to run, but I just want to make one more quick, very quick point sort of going off of that, which is uh, I I I want him to atone for some of this. I, I don't sure. want him running around. He also uh, is, is muddying the waters and creating, you know, sort of uh, keeping stereotypes alive about mental illness. He yeah. tried to yeah, blame yeah. all of this shit on mental illness, on having bipolar 2. Uh, and it's sort of like... You're, you're sitting here, you're shitting on people, you're actively harming people and you're actively creating these harmful stereotypes. And what I'm worried about is that he's just going to get away with it. This piece is just going to be part of his mythology in Hollywood and in the publishing world that people are just going to be like, what a cad, you know, like, oh, that funny guy who he's he's a fraud, but he's right. a funny fraud. The
3: other way, though, like it's yeah. performance art, right? It's ah, yeah. uh, this is he's... this was to
2: sell his books. Right. This was to, you know, become more successful. hoffman esque Yes. Right. Absolutely. Oh, I, th-
0: I think it's much more likely he just disappears. His book comes out. He stays in the <laughs> shadows, and he makes yeah. a lot of money for people.
2: Yeah, yeah. that's the awesome. TV
3: show still happens, or the movie still happens. It probably does well. And also, I bet he get doesn't get the role money he
1: would have though with that stuff that he would have before the story broke. Right? Like yes. before this breaks. Come on, you, you want to be a producer on the show, like, and have like an actual like you know showrunner adjacent level position? Sure. I'm not sure that happens now uh okay like do you let I this guy in i, I
2: kind of hope not. yeah i i'm not saying i want him to be you know run over by a truck or something but like i <laughs> well, I, I wish there was some accountability here for this sort of behavior he'll tell you because it's run run actively harmful. harmful
3: even if he wasn't so don't yeah worry. exactly we'll,
2: we'll hear all about the truck all right thank you guys so much i gotta run to a union meeting but uh,
1: thank you for having me
2: see hanging. you
1: soon rob what were you gonna what were you gonna say there No, I mean, to that point about the sort of hiding behind a diagnosis, uh, as this emerges, he says, I have bipolar Uh, 2. A doctor they interviewed who specializes uh, in the disorder for this piece uh, said, well, if if he has bipolar 2, he's one of the uh, vanishingly (laughs) small number of people whose lives have been enriched enormously by the disorder, right? Who have been enormously successful through through this disorder. Uh, Because like – most people, this is an extremely uh it, it makes it creates a lot of challenges and struggles for you in uh things that a lot of us uh who are neurotypical take for granted. Um he doesn't hit the hit the level of forethought and planning he shows and uh the way he sort of falsifies backstories here, none of it is consistent with bipolar two, according to the specialists that the New Yorker uh spoke with. Right. Um it like he is sort of ducking behind this diagnosis in a really gross way. And I think that dovetails with this isn't just a cute story. This isn't like this is a guy who has done harm. They they talk about there were people at his London office um, when he worked for a London publisher who as they started sniffing him out, he would like go after <laughs> and gaslight them. And attack them. Um, I and like people... I'm not
3: laughing at. Sorry, you said sniffing him out, and I remembered a thing he did once. I'm not laughing at the gaslighting, which is true and horrible. Yeah. I'm laughing at the time at which paper cups, plastic cups filled with urine oh were found near his boss's near and around his boss's uh, office, as he was waging a maybe separately waging a private, uh, you know, inner office political war against her. Uh, yeah, wow.
1: Yeah. So I mean, this is at first when I started reading this, I was like, okay, so he's an author who's like made up a lot of his backstory. This seems like a very New Yorker piece to run in some ways, very like literary circles, Tempest in the Teapot. But as the scope of it became clear, and like the degree to which he's become a massive success on um, basically the backs of a a lot of other people giving him opportunities and letting slide all the ways he was like lying and deceiving. Um, it became a a more troubling story for sure. Uh, The last thing I want to say here
3: is like part of the reason this story is so interesting to me is that there is such like a there, but for the grace of God, go I element to this. Um, it is, it is, would have been very easy to become a scam artist. (laughs) um, a, a large part of what my job is now is to be put in a room and to maneuver things such that we, as a group, get resources to do our fucking jobs. Um, to do that job, I've had to get very good at being a charismatic speaker, to understanding and anticipating the needs and desires of other people. Um, I think as a podcaster and as a host and as a, a person in an industry, I've had to... Uh, and honestly, frankly, as a black man in this industry, have had to develop a degree of social skill to maneuver in such a way that gives me uh, opportunities and gives us as a unit opportunities. Thankfully, the thing I've learned over time is don't fucking lie because that shit will spin out and will get you into more trouble in the long run than being straightforward about something. But I, I, it's it's like seeing... In the same way that I could imagine myself as a good preacher, I can imagine myself as a good con man. Um, and the Mallory story is the one that's like it makes me feel. It makes me very aware of the ways in which I, my social ticks and my social behaviors, are a trained skill set uh, and a reminder that we that those of us who've developed those skills have a responsibility. And this is like a corny thing, like to use them for good, but like have a responsibility to bring the best out in yourself and other people with them and not to use them for personal advantage and personal gain, especially if you're building it off the back of other people who have struggled or co-opting their narratives, right? Um, I know that's like a very particular Austin Walker perspective thing, but like that was so relevant in the story was the like, we all have to pitch ourselves. We do all have to go have that fucking lunch. Whether that is to get a, uh, you know, that can be literally, I've done this, the lunch you have in the mall at the at the food court to get your first retail job. And you're like, I'm going to fucking turn it on. I'm going to crush this interview at this Chick-fil-A. Like, that happens. Well, everything's, uh, a, everything's
0: a performance, right? Yes, it's just a matter, yes. and, 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 and often. And increasingly. Our, our, yeah, in a social media indulgent culture that, like, yes, the performance aspect is is amped up in a way that is not just in our professional lives in which you're like, I'm going to highlight my strengths and like downplay my weaknesses so that I can be the best possible candidate. Now that like is, you know, gone, you know, it's everywhere. It's, it's, it's the things we're eating. It's the places we're going. It's, we're always happy and doing, you know, we are our best selves and that's what we present. And it's just interesting because it sounds like, you know, his origin story is like, I mean, partially like, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the piece, like his mother encourages him to, like, indulge in the lie, right? In early on about, like, her condition? I don't
1: quite remember. So, there is a sequence toward the end where the reporter goes to his parents' house. And I think this maybe gives you an indication of what this is, what's all going on here. Mallory's dad is an open book and just basically, like, oh, yeah, you want to know about my son? Here's what's up. And basically, like, starts telling the, like, real and true story of, Mallory's past as a child and like what happened with his uh with his mother's cancer uh things like that and there's a lot of elements of truth to what Mallory's story is uh but none of it actually matches the real story as given by his father then in as he's talking to the reporter uh Mallory's mother shows up and she shuts down the interview she's like we aren't talking about this and I think there is maybe an element of um I don't remember a sequence where she is encouraging him to like. No,
0: so here's here's the line. I I found the line where I I just misremembered. So when the original essay that he writes, the take It full advantage of suffering. Um, they're they're in it. He writes that his mother told him to write your college and tell them your mother has cancer. So like, and this is how it happens. Right, this is how it works. It's it's like exactly what I just did is like partially how you get away with stuff like this is like you make a, a dense enough narrative about yourself, a dense enough mythology. And people just naturally are going to mix up facts and and often err on the side of like, well, why would a person do that? Like there's so much of like overhanging this story that is just a natural human tendency of like, well, why would a person do that?" And like, as it turns out, like there are people that will that will do that they and they may not be uh uh or, or maybe they are more prevalent than we actually are aware of because our natural tendency is to be like, well, no one would be that <laughs> malicious and evil and yet.
1: Yeah. And yeah. Right, and that's and that's kind of the disturbing thing. I'm very curious what happens uh over the course of this guy's career because, because that, Well, cuz there's so many interesting inflection points
0: going forward, right? So the movie comes out, I believe later this year, um and has like some really notable stars. If I go back to the beginning, um <laughs> da, da,
2: da, da. Ah, I
0: can't find. But it, I mean, it's you know, it's following the model of you know, sort of Gone Girl and Girl on the Train. Like these movies are exceptionally popular, do really well at the box office. Like I, I can't find it, but like it's Amy it, Adams is, and
3: Gary Oldman. Yeah, oh. yeah,
0: like yeah, like that's gonna yeah. you know, yeah, the,
1: key yeah. detail we didn't bring up. Uh huh. Girl in the window. Yeah. Is or basically Woman in, Woman in the Window, Girl on the Train. Girl on the Train. Yeah, Woman in the Window. God, man, he's just he, that structure. Uh-huh. Right? This is this is the like literary suspense version of like Origins of War or something like that. Like something in the something. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> Woman in the Window. Is basically a retelling of a 1980 Sigourney Weaver movie uh, that like just follows the same arc copycat yeah yep and holly hunter also yeah right and so Uh, to a degree like his book isn't even his book he was like oh i was inspired by hitchcock of course you know the master but what he was directly inspired by uh like to the point where there's almost like beat for beat moments uh yeah about the the
0: waiting for an image to load right like is a specific thing ripped from copycat that is then put into like in in copycat it's dial-up and then there's just like (laughs) I guess the author like posits like I don't know I guess there's just you know capitalism capitalism bad bad competition for cable internet in this book so you just have a slow internet speed I guess that's how you explain like you know the the distinct coincidence but it's just but it's just I'm just curious how like it's difficult to push people out once they're in like this is something we see all the time in even our own writing circles right like once you're in you're in and It's hard to fully push people out because they find other ways to get in. I'm maybe thinking a very specific thing that is playing out on social media right now that I don't want to get into when I think of stuff like that. Um, And it requires people to take active steps to remove people. And people don't like confrontation. And people like to look the other way. And it's either to hope that someone else does it but like, it's super easy for us to look at this door and real and find like, if we would look back five years from now. It's like, well, yeah, he wasn't the the face of everything anymore, but he's still around. He's still writing. He's building an IMDb before Leo. He has a new book coming out. Um, I'm just curious how how that pla like how do Amy Adams and like company answer that question? It's like, well, I wasn't involved with the writing of the. I
1: mean, there, there's all sorts of ways that stuff like this gets dodged. Well, um, and it, like what helps him dodge it is the fact that now, like you said. Amy Adams, is she going to like torpedo her own work? No, she's not like, there's so many people. And also who is she to know, right? Like that's what you can do. Who am I to know? Like I, like
0: there's a whole, this whole thing, this whole essay, this whole investigative piece is like showing how lots of people can credibly uh, plead ignorance. And then a lot of people chose ignorance, right? And the difference between the two is a very, very fine line.
1: (laughs) All right. uh, I think, Austin, you have something else?
3: No, I was just saying, yeah, totally.
1: Yeah, Uh, I think we will leave the discussion there and keep keep an eye on this guy uh, moving forward. (laughs) See what what happens next. Uh, See if that famous sophomore slump, uh, the second novel problem, uh, hits him harder than it would other people. Uh, But who knows? There's a lot of 80s classics out there that you can watch and uh, be inspired by. Uh, We're going to take a quick break here, and we're going to be back with the second half of our show. Uh, When we're going to talk a little bit about everybody's favorite thing, robocalls, and not everyone's favorite thing, (laughs) Ron Howard's solo, a Star Wars story.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Planning for your next trip?
1: All right, and we're back. Uh so, speaking of uh people taking inspiration uh from from the past and and, and uh great or po- at least popular works uh from the past. I recently watched also Con Men. Also yeah, very much about Con Men. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I I recently watched uh Ron Howard's uh, s- Solo, a Star Wars story, uh which is the backstory film for Han Solo, and I was pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed it. This was a movie I was prepared to find deeply mediocre. The reception of that movie was so overwhelmingly negative. It reviewed decently, but I remember like the reaction to that film being a collective shrug of disdain. Going into it with those admittedly like, cellar-dwelling expectations, I was sitting there and I was like, damn, this is a great, this is, this is the quintessential like, Star Wars popcorn flick. I love this, Uh, and I ended up genuinely enjoying the movie, but also not just as a throwaway piece of entertainment. It turns out, I think I actually really like what Howard brings to a picture, even if it's also the same stuff that Uh makes him kind of get a bit of disrespect as a creator.
3: So you went into this having read or at least kind of heard from the grapevine that this was not a good one. Right. Yeah. But uh, so, so I guess I haven't seen this since it came out, Patrick, you saw it when it came out.
0: No, it was, uh, you know, I, you know, me and my wife, if we go to the theaters, we see blockbusters, but the like pre-release buzz in this, plus like, I'm like a big fan of like Lord and Miller, like the original, like r- mm, writer yes. or original directors that were assigned to this and then fired halfway through production. Then Ron Howard was brought in to like reshoot 80% of the movie. Um, and so I was just like, that just uh, whatever. Like, I'm not gonna waste a favor of my mom on this movie. I'll catch it on Netflix. Like, was my yeah. approach. And then had more or less the same response that Rob did. It was like, this is fine. Like, the huge like, I, as much as I'd rather have seen like the the uh, failure experiment of Lord and Miller. Like, I think that would have been a more interesting movie than this. Um, like, it's you know, Star Wars is treated as uh, the each movie is treated as an event, as like yes. it is a it, it is a moment in the in the in the calendar. Like this only happens every once in a while. And solo's like big problem, other than just like, do we need to get a backstory on Han Solo? Would that have worked better as a TV series? Like both of those things are like probably true. Um, is that Star Wars, like the way it lives in people's like hearts is as like an event, right? Like they remember where you were when like original Star Wars or when the prequels came back or even like the like the Force Awakens like th- those are like moments in people's lives and so Star Wars purchased by Disney is like was trying to make this pivot to the Marvel like approach which is like actually it's going to be episodic there's going to be more of them like rather than an institution that arrives every couple of years it's something you're going to revisit every couple of months and we're going to tell these side stories and like Solo was the first one out of the gate that's like well here's how we're going to do this and it not being an, like it's not an event movie, right? Like it is just sort of like a. It's fine. Like I had a good time. Worst ways to spend ninety minutes. I like Star Wars, but it wasn't uh, an, an a, and a moment. And uh, because of that, and you know, fandom and all sorts of other reasons,
1: it you <laughs> know it got sort of the reputation that it did. Uh, Austin, it sounded like you had a different reaction to this film.
3: So no, in, in some ways, I had the same one, which is I think Star Wars needs Solo. I want so Star Wars is one of those things that like I. I grew up completely in love with, read a bunch of books, was way into the EU, played every game, was my thing. Was my kingdom hearts as a kid. Do you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> sure. And uh, is no longer, but but it still still holds a very important uh, spot in my heart. In the uh, the Waypoint radio with Adam Conover a few weeks ago, we were talking about the power of brands and how even if you're aware, it can be you can have a weak spot for someone, even if you're like like me anti-capitalist and like, yo, fuck brands. Everyone the, has one. You can everyone. You can,
0: everyone has like the soft
3: something, right? And I think I think we see it in games criticism all the time mm-hmm. with uh, like JRPGs, because a lot of us came up in the era of the JRPG game, came up playing Final Fantasy and Chrono Trigger, and so there will be people who or Metal Gear, right, where it's like, no, this is my fucking thing. I want to I want to not bring to bear the critical apparatus that I do with everything else on this thing. Uh, or it's not even thoughtful in that way. It's just like, I'm interested in maybe, I'm more interested in this because it has some deep meaning it, to me. I'm not, this is, again, isn't a diss on anyone. This is a thing that happens to all of us. And for me, Star Wars is probably still that thing. There's a moment where Luke is looking at it, two sons in um, The Last Jedi and uh, the uh, Binary binary Sunset is the name of the track, I think, mm-hmm. uh, starts playing. And I just like realized I was like full on crying in the theater. Uh, and it's like oh wow this has me this is still in there for me (laughs) oops and and (laughs) ryan johnson just like pulled it out of me uh from some deep he (laughs) he split me into heartless and nobody form uh (laughs) uh and just completely devastated me um the the so so and to some degree there is part of me as a fan that could jealously want to retain that that feeling of of specialness, but the true heart of me as a fan is the one who wanted to read tales from Jabba's palace and tales of the bounty hunters. Who wanted to read the the trilogy, the you know the Air uh, uh, to the Empire trilogy. Like who wanted to read about various uh, X wing pilots spread spread over or fighter pilots spread across the the you know the rebels. Um, that stuff. The the part of me that really was the most active fan. Wanted there to be lots of kind of garbage, uh, and 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 popcorn stuff, and stuff that just let me inhabit the world for a little bit. The fan of me played, you know, Dark Forces two mods that gave me uh, Mandalorian yeah. armor plus a lightsaber and let me be my ridiculous Star Wars OCs. Um, also, Dark Forces two is just fucking great, top to bottom as a game. All that that whole series is great. Um, and so I think I think Star Wars needs Solo to break the seal almost and be like, you know what? Sometimes it's a popcorn flick. This is a world that you can inhabit across a number of genres that doesn't only have to be about the, the force. It can just as well be about a train heist. Here is a very potent collection of symbols and iconography and sounds that mean something to people as viewers. Uh, and we should open the door for more creators to play around in that space. It's why I like the idea of Lord and Miller, uh, you know, running well, that's the what they
0: did right like i think right. that's part of like what fueled like the the vitriolic reaction was like okay fine if no one really wanted again no one wanted a lego movie no one wanted a revival of 21 jump street And it's like right. those, they found a way to be like yeah that bullshit thing that like corporations do like we're gonna take it and like do something with it and yes. so like that's why i remain like so curious about what that movie me too t- might have been um because even if it was even at the end of the day, you looked you looked back on it and went like, "Well, that was a weird misfire." But like that, as like totally fine and competent as like throwaway as Solo is, like I still would have rather lived in a world where it's like Disney recognized like you motherfuckers are going to show up to a Star Wars movie, right? Yes. So like, let's str- you know, this is the, the the ongoing criticism of like you know things like Marvel, where it's like just be fucking weird, like let creatives like go do something strange because people are going to show up and like there is no brand there was no franchise bigger than star Wars in that where like, that's why I was excited for a little while. was like, Oh, like go. Yes. Like people (sighs) butts are going to be in seats because you put star Wars at the top and that music's
1: going to play and it's going to scroll. So I don't know. I kind of, I just get this feeling like the Lord Miller cut of, of solo. That thing sounds like Jodorowsky. I'm I'm not, I'm not trying to suggest (laughs) it's like the Snyder cut of like justice league, like where there's like a good version of that exists. I
0: think it could have been bad as well. I, I was just, thinking that would have been in good the, in the misfire.
3: It would be good if it was bad, right? The sooner we right, yes. take the sheen Solo off, is the, thing, more the better. Like,
0: if this had have been a TV pilot, we all would have just gone like, "Sure, that's fine. I'd watch some more episodes of this."
3: No, see, actually, so here is my actual problem: is I think the I think the film misfires whenever it has to be about Han Solo.
0: Um, I want I when want he's this standing movie in line you know, and they ask him what his name yes. is.
3: Fuck, dude! It's Hell, so how did bad. he get those
0: dice? How giving, did he
3: get those dice? Giving an answer for why he refers to the Millennium Falcon as she or her uses she, her pronouns for the shit. Oh Having God a, damn. That's yeah, what that was about. Dude. Fuck. That's what that's about. That's what that's about without spoiling stuff. there's a canon reason. Spoil it, that. spoil it, spoil it. No. Solo has been out for almost two years. It's a robot, a robot. A oh, cool man. robot. Okay. So this Land- is, oh this my God. Now i remembering the, i remembering the queer discourse around the way they talked about Lando. <laughs> Do you remember this?
0: Yeah. Does he fuck the robot?
3: Does he fuck the robot? And does that make him queer? Does that mean he's gay? Does that mean he's bi or pan? or like That was the discourse when this movie came out. No wonder I didn't have as good of a time in that theater as I wanted to. (laughs) Lando, I want to be clear, Donald Glover's Lando, extremely hot, extremely powerful, wears a cape, has a cool robot sidekick who he maybe fucks. Who could say? Um, Dies, dies, the robot dies, but they save her memory core and load it into the Millennium Falcon, which is why it's able to do the Kessel Run in so few parsecs, because it has all of her data in it. This is why I don't like this being about Han Solo. If this had been the vessel run, and it had not, and it had been Bolo instead of Solo, I would have loved this movie so all the way through. This is
1: this is the thing. There's a couple things with, with make Howard, a Bosque movie. Do it with, with Ron Howard. You do get like Ron Howard has no signature style. But the thing I appreciate about Ron Howard is isn't
3: his signature style America. <laughs> uh. <laughs> like, like this high amalgamation of American filmmaking
1: yeah, I mean, you yeah, I, I, certainly the the fact that he's got a um pads of glory like homage sequence in this to kubrick yeah, I, uh, I don't
3: mean nationalism. I want to be clear. I don't even mean patriotism no, i like mean great american popular filmmaking. american cinema right the 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 sort of like the school of Spielberg and Lucas but also a little bit broader than that and bringing in just, like, American filmmaking.
1: Yeah, and that is what he does. Now, the thing is, this means he doesn't have a signature style. Like, his best movie, I would argue, is uh, the F1 movie he made, Rush. Um, Yeah, that movie is surprisingly great. That's also because he's basically... It's a Michael Mann movie. Like, (laughs) like, Like, from beginning to end, that is more of a Michael Mann movie than it is anything else, but Ron Howard can a director very effectively, right? Like, he studies this stuff, he knows how to evoke it. I think where right. this movie tends to work is, as he's creating this good, like, heist movie western pastiche, uh, he's, he's very effective at weaving those elements together, and I do like the fact that there's a few places where he does seem to stop and think about, like, where the script at least stops and thinks about weird fucked up things in the background of Star Wars that we never think about. Like, the fact that Lando, Lando's, uh, you know, droid girlfriend question is...
3: mark. Pardon? I just said question mark.
1: Yeah. Because uh, it's not resolved. Yeah, it's just sort of yeah. suggested. The fact that she's introduced as basically being somebody who's trying to lead, like, droid liberation movements and droid insurrections. Which, this is, like, the first Star Wars movie that, uh, like, at least acknowledges the fact that this is profoundly fucking weird that droids have fully formed personalities and are basically yep. people with like hopes fears <laughs> dreams but are also just like <laughs> servants and slaves against their will and it's funny if yep. they get blown up and this movie at least pauses and there's a sequence where uh the droid uh L337 uh oh, elite
3: do you mean yeah, elite
1: fuck yeah uh-huh that just dawned on I me mean, that's not great uh <laughs> L three, three, seven basically starts a droid insurrection just by like pose it, like basically doing the, you have nothing to lose, but your chains. And the next thing you see is all the famous droids of star Wars that like just existed to be in the background, start tearing up this prison complex. And it's funny, but at the same time, the thing I appreciated about it is there's a lot of things that like exist just like it's in your eyeline in star Wars, but you're never encouraged to like think about it or question it at all. In a couple places, this game pauses and does like this game, this movie, like, does pause and <laughs> well, consider, yeah, what, what the traditional presentation of a Star Wars movie might be leaving out, which I do appreciate,
3: yeah, totally. And I'll say, like, most of the stuff here that that is not, um, uh, Han himself, uh, I, I really love. I think, I think that Woody Harrelson does a great job as. Han Solo's like would be mentor. Um, I think that uh, Glover again does a great job as as Calrissian, and Amelia Clark's kind of romantic lead uh, is is strong. And I like I think the, the entourage cast in general is just like very strong. There's a degree of like this is a heist picture. And it's a Star Wars heist picture. It's the one that they've been threatening to make uh, across various media, books, uh, uh, games, and movies for you know two or three decades now. The books did it a couple of times the games didn't ever come out. There's three games now that have been cancelled that have been about scoundrels in Star Wars. Uh, I guess like, I guess, I know Shadows of the Empire doesn't really have a heist thing, but like it has a Han Solo knockoff. Rogue, as and Rogue lead.
0: One is also very heisty. You're
3: right, but yeah. it's also a war movie, right? It is a heist yeah. movie, but it's also a war movie. Uh, Rogue One it's is It's more of good. a war movie than, Man. It's, it's, a
1: heist, it's a heist movie within a war, yeah, I like Rogue One. Yet another movie that yeah. had to be, and this is the thing, like everyone's like, oh, I wish Lord and Miller had been able to complete their vision. Tony Gilroy came in and took right. Rogue One over from Gareth Edwards, and I like Gareth Edwards a lot. But by all accounts, extensive portions of that movie were also basically directed and rewritten by Tony the Gilroy. The whole
0: ending was apparently like shot under his direction. Like <laughs> it's wow. weird because like Lord, like, if you go read on some of the production, go look up some uh, interviews with Tony Gilroy about the movie because he clearly gives no fucks. Because like the way the Solo's production played out. Uh, Lord and Miller were like really conciliatory, like saying, ah, you know, went in different directions. Uh, it, it didn't like publicly trash the movie or like Howard or or uh, Kasdan and his son who wrote the script. Um, but like, Gil- and Gilroy Gil- like, didn't like, doesn't actively shit on Edwards, but like said, like there are act- like quotes that are like, I'm paraphrasing the he's like, yeah, that movie was like a trash fire. Like I came in <sighs> and like, whew, like, uh, wow. yeah, we really kind of saved that thing at the last possible second, which is just fascinating because that's not usually. The comment, I mean, you know, Marvel's most famous incident was uh, Edgar Wright getting uh, punted from Ant Man. I think three weeks before shooting, and then like slowly scrambling to like turn that movie around. But even Edgar Wright more or less like sort of just moved on. So like, go look up some Tony Gilroy quotes because they're pretty pretty delicious.
3: I one of my big like question marks here is what to. Uh, it is has been so one we, we can open up the door to a bigger conversation. Around copyright and Disney vacuuming up every possible IP that matters to anyone, um, the fact that they are releasing Star Wars movies and Marvel movies is so strange and important to recognize uh, that, like, they're they own a lot of nerd culture at this point.
0: Go look uh, up what their slate is for this year. It is just, I mean, Disney movies. You mean uh, yes, Disney oh, movies, boy. like Disney, like. From Endgame to a live-action Lion King remake with Beyoncé. Like, I mean, it's just... Right. The, you, right. For, you often forget. And this is without the fact that they just acquired Fox, will then probably add a brand-new Marvel movie per year right. with the X-Men. So this is, and I'll then re- also have a spinoff label called Fox that does, like, their R-rated stuff that will also be releasing Disney movies throughout the calendar yeah. year. Yeah, so
3: I'll just read. This is from a Quartz uh, article called Disney's uh, Disney's Movies Are Going to Be Unstoppable in 2019. Captain Marvel, Dumbo, Penguins, which is a Disney nature movie, Avengers Endgame, Aladdin, uh, Toy Story 4, The Lion King, Artemis Fowl, Frozen 2, Star Wars Episode 9. Uh, That doesn't include Fox films like Dark Phoenix Phoenix or New Mutants, which New Mutants looks like it. New Mutants, another one that is a movie that like has gone through some weird behind the scenes changes, right? I know, Patrick, you were just talking about this in a chat we were in.
0: Yeah, Newmans is like, yeah, Fox, as they like spun out of control on what to do with X-Men, they said, yo, just let some guy make a horror movie. And that sounded cool. And now that movie sounds like it's going to end up on Hulu in a really bastardized production.
3: Weird. Um, And so I think there's like a big conversation to have there. But there's also for me a conversation as a Star Wars fan, but also just as like a a cultural critic that is like, they're doing well. Even this movie was profitable, right? This movie cost 200 some million, made 300 some million, almost 400 million.
0: Um, By the time you do franchise, you know, like yeah, merchandising, yeah, yeah. right? But it
3: blah, isn't blah, blah, Marvel. It probably
0: comes out ahead.
3: It isn't Avengers, right? It's not. It's not the cultural centerpiece that it would have been. There was during the 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 prequels, right, where it's like, wow, this could be the biggest thing. The audience is here for it. The audience is huge. Like, it's been interesting to watch it kind of be one more niche, which again I think is good for it in the long run one more like niche fandom, like, oh, yeah, I'm a big Star Wars fan, the way you might also be a big Marvel fan or a big, you know, Disney, not Disney fan, but like a big whatever your your particular big Star Trek fan, um, which is probably right. good for the health of it in the long run because it doesn't need, not everything needs to burden the weight of everything, but I also am just trying to understand what is it about superheroes versus space opera right now in this moment that is making the former more exciting to a wider audience than the latter, what is it about our current moment that is making superheroes so much more exciting than space heists or laser swords, um, and I don't have an answer. I don't have like a quick and dirty answer, but it's something I've been turning over in my head as these Star Wars uh, sequels have been coming out.
1: My answer would be that, uh, that like the Avengers series, the Marvel series, was built from the start, um, or at least rapidly evolved into a very lavish soap opera, uh, superhero sure. soap, soap opera. Whereas Star Wars, they just buy the structure of the series to date that cannot be accomplished until they wrap up this next trilogy. Uh, And then they
3: can start a new,
1: they can start a new chapter of star Wars, put the skywalkers in the past, put the, and just like star Wars is something else. I'm curious what that looks like, but right now you're in this awkward place where there's the mainline series, which runs headlong into the buzzsaw of like toxic fan discourse around star Wars. Uh, which gets massively overstated uh, and just amplifies the shittiest voices. And then you have these prequel like tie-in movies that are doing, dude, you know, Austin, this is a lot like Tales from Los Isley in terms of the forced tie-in to shit you've seen from the movies. You're totally right. It's like, it doesn't go off in the fully weird directions that like the Deveronian tales, uh, the Deveronian's tale like goes off into. Uh, in Tales from Mos Eisley, but at the same time, it's still very much that. Hey, remember that thing you saw for two minutes in the background of this one scene where Han Solo is being carried up the uh, you know ramp in Carbonite? Well, mm-hmm. here's the story of that. Um, and so that's the other thing they've got to divorce Star Wars stories from. And I don't know what the future of. I don't know if they're bringing those back. I don't know if that's a well. The
3: Mandalorian is continue. supposed to hit sometime. This so that's year? a TV
1: series, but
0: basically, like this movie after. After this movie came out and sort of didn't didn't light the world on fire and just did like okay which what to disney was not acceptable for uh, uh, uh a star wars film is like they immediately canceled the uh uh boba fett movie that was going into production that fall there was also apparently soonish was going to be a prequel movie about uh obi-wan um right taking place sometime near there that got scuttled and they basically just said like ah we're just going to punt until episode 9 and then pivot to like series of trilogies because they have what ryan johnson's trilogy and then the game of thrones dudes are apparently doing some another thing which again thing.
3: i want those things to happen because i want more people to play in this playground julie muncie in our kingdom hearts 3 review kind of makes the case that like i'm at the, the thing that's nice about really wild things happening in huge corporate properties is that they give us a vision into the world of copyright restrictions uh kind of opening up one in which we can all do wild things with these big properties. Um, ones in which you know Mickey Mickey Mouse is a is an anime ninja. <laughs> um, and so like, yeah, like I I keep playing around in this space. <clears throat> Maybe you'll only make a few hundred million dollars instead of Avengers two billion. And I mean I guess you should say Last Jedi made over a billion dollars. We're not talking about chump change. We're not talking about small successes. Like it's a huge. It's still a huge franchise. We're still talking about um, uh, uh, an industry or a, a, uh, a franchise that is has huge amount of money into it um but but yeah i don't know well, it was also
0: uh, just star wars like i'm star wars like it is its future like the mcu like the the you know what warner brothers is trying to do with like the the dc films like those movies are just very lavish tv episodes right yes. like it's worth it like it's worth yeah. rethinking them they're not movies they're just really big budget television episodes playing into a larger arc and so star wars in, in coming back Comes as though, th- while a giant shift has occurred in how you do episodic storytelling, right? So it's like it existed in a place where sequels came every couple of years, and that was the norm. Now Marvel is telling a story every couple of months, and yeah. so like, where does Star Wars fit in that? Like, the storytelling is different. You just exist as a cultural monolith that comes every couple of years. But I think that's where Star Wars probably actually ends up: is that there's a movie every two years, and or once a year, and then. It ends up just like spinning off in a TV where it's lower stakes in terms of uh, uh, both the storytelling and like what is expected in terms of success. But it's this, like it just come it comes in a world where like people want to hear what's happening next like four months later, and like right. that's not how Star Wars is operated.
3: They want a little tease of what the next big 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 one is, but they also want content constantly. The Mandalorian has a killer cast and crew. Uh, it's going to be on Disney Plus, I guess. But it's like Jon Favreau is writing it. Uh, it's uh, Pedro Pascal, Gina Carano, Nick Nolte. Uh, Giancarlo, Esp- uh, Esposito, uh, Carl Weathers is in this. Werner Herzog is going to be in this Uh uh-huh. show. Is being which, the villain, supposedly? Yep. Yeah, great. Have you heard the pitch on this, Rob? No. Uh, the Mandalorian, this is from wiki, Wikipedia. The Mandalorian takes place after the fall of the Empire and before the emergence of the First Order and follows a lone gunfighter in the outer reaches of the galaxy, far from the authority of the New Republic. It's a frontier story. It's it's gonna be, you know, like, and I've this is this is what I'm saying about my critical like apparatus fucking shattering. Is I will be on a podcast all day, be like frontier stories are, you know, in, uh, inherently uh, neocolonialist uh, parables <laughs> that uh, allied the sins of of empire and erase the destructions of uh, of of uh, uh, indigenous people and the the, the many uh, oppressed peoples who built empire. On on whose backs empire was built? Oh wow, there's going to be a space gunfighter on the on the outer rim (laughs) territories. Oh shit, he's going to be a Mandalorian armor. Well, the oh man, the Mandalorian armor has we can't be a Mandalorian obviously because the Mandalorians were killed out years before this, but their armor did become a sort of status symbol for you know bounty hunters and outlaws. Exactly, exactly. Some of them some of them, even learned uh, some, some very interesting fighting styles.
1: Johto cast uh, the Dan Mallory of bounty hunters in Star Wars.
3: Yo, that's exactly true. Oh, my God.
1: We're going to tie it off there, because uh, I think we're rapidly <laughs> going to start losing people who are not as into that bullshit as we are. Um, you need to understand that Johto cast was not a Mandalorian, but
3: absolutely wore Mandalorian armor and, like, And, like, beat his chest about it, as if he were.
1: Now he's Um, editor-in-chief of Mandalorian Monthly. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) uh, Patrick, uh, so we were having an important business meeting earlier today, and in the middle of it, my Uh phone rang. And I'm always like, phone call, probably important, but increasingly they never are. They're always just fucking telemarketing or robocalls. Uh, Patrick, uh, apparently there's there's an explanation for some of this. Sort of. There are theories. Um,
0: so there is... A, I One of my favorite podcasts is uh, Reply All. Um, I guess uh, congrats to them. Sounds like they're about to get bought for a lot of money in a Spotify. Uh, Gimlet Media, the company that runs all that stuff. So good for them. Um, and they... Uh, Reply All, like one of the segments they do is like... People like ask a question and then they try and go find an answer. They don't necessarily find resolution, but it's like, hey, we're just going to go dig into this. And one of the reporters there was like, I just... Robocalls are a thing that we're all, if you're not somehow not familiar with, like, I'm so happy for you. Like, I hope that you remain (laughs) outside of the realm of robocalls. But I think most of us familiar were like, you get a phone call from a random number, you pick it up. It is often just a message playing that immediately sounds like some sort of scam. Maybe they're trying to sell you a vacation package. Maybe they're trying to sell you insurance. Maybe they're saying it's the IRS and you need to call and resolve some issue where they'll try and get your uh, uh, social security number, blah, blah, blah. Um, and they've always been a part of sort of the like phone culture. But then there was what? And then it was in the 90s or early 2000s when there was like the do not disturb list where you could like put your phone number on and then uh, people weren't supposed to call you. But it just seems like, and, and the reporter posits, in the last couple of years, it just seems like there's been more robocalls. Like it just, every, instead of every once in a while, it's like several times a day to the point there's now a uh, cottage industry on app stores um, to try and like flag hey, this is a scam, like you can safely go ahead and block this number. The one they recommend is the one that I had been recommended by someone in the past is this one called Haya, H-I-Y-A. You can the app store, it's free, there's a paid version, but the free version is fine. And like basically what it does is when a phone number comes up, it'll let you know, telemarketer, scam. Um, But the thing is like, that's the easy stuff. The stuff that I have been getting hit with and the reason I like immediately started raising my eyebrow and because this reporter got the same thing was getting phone numbers in your area code over and over again. And then that area code changing based on like your location where it's like you're getting robo calls from like your local area code, you go somewhere else. And then you're suddenly getting robo calls from that area code. And they start unpacking a, uh, why robo calls have happened more often. It is because, uh, the, uh, FEC under, uh, Obama, like, uh, or FD, uh, yeah, FEC, uh, under Obama, uh, Obama, like, passed a regulation that, like, basically outlawed auto dialers, Um, and then a U.S. district court, like, very strictly interpreted one word in, like, that order that said, like, ah, that's way too broad, and then Mm -hmm. removed it, and then it basically opened up the floodgates for robocalling all over again, and now that we live in, you know, Republican presidency, there's no interest in any sort of regulation there, so that explains, on its face, why the robocalling is all so much more prevalent? Because it's just very easy to do. Like it was mentioned in the episode that, basically, if you want to just like blanket San Francisco, it takes about what five minutes as long as you've got the phone numbers to just start spamming people. Um, on top of that, it actually ties into motherboard. So uh, a number of weeks back, motherboard, uh, one of the other websites under Vice, ran a piece about uh, you. The, the, you can there are bounty hunters you can pay to. Just track you down. It's because they're somehow able to get access to like very specific location data for phone numbers. And in this, throughout this podcast, and you know, I don't want to summarize the whole whole goddamn thing. Like they suddenly realize that like that's where all of this stuff is coming from too. There was, um, you know, like generic phone numbers like one eight hundred cleaners or one eight hundred whatever. Like the person who like sort of started a business around that. The whole idea that they this person was buying up uh, generic phone numbers was to try and like route people to local businesses. So it's like if you call it like one eight hundred Jimmy John's, like the re- like and what's I supposed do. to happen? Yeah, and who who among us is not called one eight hundred Jimmy John's? <laughs> the idea behind the business like makes a lot of sense. Is like you call for a service and they they route you to the local ones. So like what he operate he acts as a middleman where he licenses out these numbers and then also is able to like look up look up the area code of a phone number so that you can like route people for for local businesses that are telling whatever. But what ended up happening was that people started just selling this data whole cloth to all sorts of different places. And so what ended up happening is like if your if your number gets leaked out through all the sorts of different ways it could be scraped and shared, uh what's happening is these the, these sort of exploitation robocall services are just then they know your number. They're just pinging it all the time. And so when you go from New York to L.A., the reason you get those robocalls in L.A. is because they're just scraping that data over and over again. And there's nothing you can do about it except to just keep blocking and just keep hoping.
3: It's a fascinating story. Not- and, yeah, shout-outs to Joseph Cox, who is who we were just in a meeting with uh, at Motherboard, who does a lot mm-hmm. of great stories at Mother uh, at Motherboard. Um, this stuff is so weird because I somehow – so. I lived in Canada for five years, uh, four and a half years, and so I didn't have a phone number here again until I want to say 2015 when I moved back. And for two years, I didn't get any spam. I didn't get any robocalls. Less. I didn't get any sc- Like I got no scams. I got nothing. I got nothing that was like even close to it. Bill collectors, but that's about it. Uh, and then, and then, somewhere in 2017, it just it was like a faucet turned on, and it was just like nonstop. I get them three or four times a day now. Um, ranging from, I mean, I just don't pick up at this point, right? It's like, if it's a number I don't recognize, I don't pick it up because this is what it is. Uh, And it is so interesting to see the ways in which these various different industries interlock based on previous assumptions that their best practices won't have a negative effect. Right. Um, Also, the legislative side of this, which is a lot about what a robocall is. There's an entire diversion in this podcast episode about how... The language that was put in uh, to place in a bill that was about consumer protections uh, was a little too broad, and so it meant that any device. The way it was written was that, like, there would be there was the word capacity. I think capacity. Is like capacity. What, what, yes. Yeah. If a device has the capacity to be a robocall device, it can't be used. Blah blah blah. But the the companies, the lobby was basically like, well, any any phone, any you know uh, cell phone now, any smartphone. Has the capacity to become a robocalling device. Computers are have the capacity, but we need computers, we need phones obviously. So throw this whole thing out and basically all those protections evaporated. Um, and so uh, well,
0: and um, yeah. um, the like uh, an interesting aside on that is that also uh, so when they passed that even though it didn't totally get rid of robocalling, it got rid of it, a lot of it because then what businesses had to do was that so then the autodialers were banned, so they hired people to press a button that started the auto dialer. So it's like the companies that wanted to continue this then had to purchase, you know, pay for labor to make the auto dialer do the thing. But a lot of places just said, ah, fuck it. That's just, you know, we're operating on like pennies in order to make this uh, profitable anyway. So we're not going to pay someone to hit a button.
3: Well, and those people were not getting on the phone, right? Those people were not, they weren't cold calling, right? (coughs) All they were doing, excuse me, all they were doing was hitting a button that dialed the next number in their database so that a thing would then, an automated voice message would speak. Ugh, man. Capitalism is is a fucking thing. And, like, I think that's, that's part of this, too, is that, like, it emerges from a history of sales that, like, I, I wonder if you, you, both of you know what cold calling is. I'm sure you've, like, seen enough David Mamet to know that or, or have been, you know, have known salespeople who've done cold
0: calling. But, like, my my brother does it now. It sucks. <laughs>
3: it sucks. My dad has done it before. Like I I know lots of my my uncle used to do it. Like there was a there was a world of of salespeople out there who what they do is they get a stack of phone numbers and they have a product to sell and they call. They just call those phone numbers. Those those uh those phone numbers are leads that like maybe are people who are in the market for a certain product. <laughs> maybe they need a new bed. Maybe they need new car insurance. Uh, and someone in, in an office somewhere makes the call over and over and over again. Uh, and that model of business has been around for so long that there's like a, God, there is a, there is a, Paul, Paul, Vir- Paul Virilio was a cultural critic and a philosopher and a bunch of other things. Virilio famously wrote that uh, when you invented the the ship, you invented the shipwreck. Um, because ships are going to crash, right? Uh, when, right. You, when you start making uh, boats as big as the Titanic, you've made the Titanic. Um, and so, like, when you made this sort of, one, when you made the, the technologies that could do robocalling, two, when you've made a culture of cold-call sales, um, robocalling scams are invented. It's just that they haven't been, they haven't happened yet. Uh, And to some degree, it's like this is the natural extension. And this is why smart legislation and regulation have to be put into place that anticipate these sorts of things and and uh, produce protections for people so that they aren't scammed. Because like it's not like this is just an annoyance for us. It's an annoyance because we like hang up
0: my my. uh, But yeah, like people are like my uh, a couple of months back. um, My uh, my mother got a call in which like she got the IRS scam in which it says like, hey. You know, there is, I forget what what the actual scam was, but hey, there's some inconsistency. You need to call us and we need to go over this. And fortunately, you know, I told my mom like, hey, if you ever get like a weird call, like run it by me. Like I read up on this stuff, like, and she called me. She's like, I'm really, you know, uh, scared. Like this sounds like something messed up. And I was like, call the act, go to the IRS's website. we'll go there together, we'll find a phone number, call them, and ask them if they... They will have this written down somewhere. You need to get proof from them that you should call this number back. Like, rather than just tell my mom, it's a scam, like, don't believe... Like, you know, she doesn't... Like, I understand where you get the message and you're scared out of your wits that, like, you're going to suddenly owe $10,000 and, like, some taxes that you were just weren't, weren't aware of or some penalty. So she called, got the okay, and then we blocked that number. But, I mean, how many how many mothers or how, how many, you know, elderly people like know to make that call. Right. Like there, there's a reason like we're all getting spammed. You and I, we are younger people. Like we're getting spammed with this because it's easy and it's cheap and it must like work just often enough that whatever pennies it costs to do the robocalling is worth like spamming those numbers. Um, Cause it actually, it's probably mostly costless cause it's all digital and it's having, and it's automated, but like, this is, like, a practice that is, like, absolutely, like, working on the margins and the exploited and folks that don't know any better and are technology illiterate um, to try and, you know, get money out of them. And it, I know it works because I've heard horror
1: stories of it actually working.
3: You've heard the, the famous – Yeah, I mean go – ahead, Go ahead, Rob.
1: No, I was just going to say, like, if you are – if you are someone who is often vulnerable to various – like – for instance, there have been lots of times in my life where somebody calling about late payment on something yep, had a very good chance of being for real. You know what I mean? Like, there were points in my life where, like, there were checks being kited, there were, pe- there were creditors sort of being kept at bay, and a scary fucking phone call being like, hey, you need to call us right now, or we're going to evict, repossess it. There was a very good chance that that thing could be legit. Never was. But that's the thing. It never was. Nobody... I ever, like, was sort of putting off or, like, delaying payment, nobody ever actually contacts you about that until you're, like, really in arrears. But if you're <laughs> somebody... Did happen to me. If you're somebody who's, like, in a position like that a lot, somebody on the other end of a line being like, hey, you need to call us about your car payment. Hey, you need to call us about your student loans mm-hmm. or there will be consequences. You believe, like, shit, this is caught up to me. Yeah. I better call them back. And at that point you are entering like at that point where you're going to get in contact with is a fraud, right? You're going to get in contact with somebody who's going to be very good at sounding official and for real and that you can somehow prevent something bad happening to you and your family if you just do what they say and work with them on whatever they're trying to sell you on. And that's who's like com- the door is completely thrown open to these fuckers uh when you have regulatory changes that don't quash this stuff. Uh when you basically encourage people to misrepresent themselves as the people who hold the paper on your car, the paper on your warranty, uh, the paper on your student loans.
3: That stuff is terrifying even when you know it's legit, right? Yep. Like there are, I, like, I'm in the middle of, of uh, 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 what is the word I'm looking for? Um, con- not condensing. Uh, da- 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 da, you have a bunch of loans and you bring them together.
1: Yeah, what consolidation. Lo- consolidating. I'm a terrified bunch of- to do it because who's going to screw you? Uh, uh,
3: someone. Uh, like here's the thing. You're going to get screwed even if you do it legit, right? Uh, but yeah. like, yeah, I was like, okay, well, I'm on the phone with this person. I'm 90% sure they're legit. I'm going to do the thing where I hang up. I get a number from the internet that is 100% legit. I call back. I get connected. Okay, this is all good so far. But then it's like, all right, send us this info. Like, fuck. I don't want to send you this info. This info is important. Like There was a point at which I was on the phone with a dentist recently, and they were like, yeah, can you just uh, give me your your social, basically? We need <laughs> it for for your insurance. N- no. I'll give it to you when I go in. I'll give it to you when I'm at the desk. Like, oh, it's gonna make you wait longer. Yeah, that's okay. I'll wait. Like, I. It, it's so terrifying to do anything because it would be so. Because you you hear horror stories of identity of identity theft, and it's one of those things that is a. We were recently talking about the failure of uh the ways in which God. When was this even? This was during the wait. This was during Monday's uh, Waypoint Radio where we were talking about the Super Bowl ads for uh the the who was it verizon doing the um the ads for first responders uh and and how i was trying to make the case that when these when when companies go out of their way to be like look at how we're helping look at how we're part of the infrastructure you need to survive that is often a sort of spackling of Failures of public infrastructure. It's a sort of it's them saying, hey, hey, we don't need to rethink the, the world here. We don't need to build a, a whole new system from ground up. We'll do our little bit of part to make sure that everybody is OK with the current completely fucked system. Um, and and I think that part of my anxiety reflects a failure to one regulate and keep scammers out of my out of my mentions so to speak right like just get the <laughs> fuck out of my dms and off my phone scammers um because if that if there was protection if we did feel secure and we didn't feel like we all had to be security experts uh then then maybe we would be in a in a position where i wouldn't feel nervous literally talking to someone i know is from the bank someone who i've worked with over the last year to fix a credit score like i, I that suggests a, 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 again a deeper cultural or sociological uh, failing in terms of there being safety for, for safety and recourse if you do get scammed, right? Well,
0: and While, that's, so that's, yeah, go, go ahead. Robert. No, go for it. Well, I was going to say like the, well, I'm going to launch into a story about how I thought I got scammed and I got, so uh, a number of years ago when I lived in LA was moving back to San Francisco and I, my wife had gone ahead of us and I thought I was taking care of like the moving and the moving truck. And taking care of all of our bills, like wrapping up all those accounts and like getting things settled before we moved to San Francisco and thought I'd take care of all of that stuff. And like we had AT&T, uh, internet at the time. And like, I thought I'd pay that last bill. And so moved to San Francisco and don't hear nothing happens for a couple of years. And then like some like two years later, maybe something like that, I get this phone call. It's like, Hey, like we're from a collections agency. Uh, like you owe like forty five dollars on like this bill that was passed, and I was like, "Excuse me, like you're coming to the year like forty five dollars? Like, uh-huh. could you send me proof of? Could you send me proof of it?" And they're like, "We don't have to." I'm like, "What do you mean you don't?" I was like, "Send me something in the mail that is like I can hold, like <laughs> that says like I owe you forty five dollars." Like I was like, "You realize you just called me out of the blue? You say I owe you forty five dollars, which isn't even that much. I've got forty five dollars, <laughs> but like." Why am I just gonna give my credit card number over the phone? Just send me something in the mail. Give me proof of that, like, we don't have to. I was like, well, then I'm not doing this. And so then I called AT&T and I tried to get like, did you, like, what happened here? And they're like, I was like, I lived in LA, I came back. They're like, well, we don't show proof of anything. And I was like, all right, well, scam. Like, I'm not gonna answer those phone calls anymore. So just, just moved on from that. And then it went away for like six, eight months and got the calls again. And they're like, and I asked for proof, and they said they did not have to offer it. Did they like hit they, you up you with know, fees
1: at that point where it's no longer 45 I don't know. Like, I
0: wasn't even getting that far in the conversation. Yeah. I was like, send me something in the mail. And they're like, no. And I'm like, okay. Then I called AT&T again and like like refused to get off the phone. And they're like, oh, yeah, like we sent you something to LA. And I was like, I live in San Francisco. Like, did you send a second notice? like, no, nah, we only sent one. And I was like, I never <laughs> got a phone call. And so they're like, yeah, that's legit. And I'm like, oh, so I do owe this $45. Now, it hadn't ballooned into very much after that, but it had hit – I had otherwise had like a really clean credit score. And so that like took a big hit because not only did it – it was because it lingered for years. It was just like something you just refused to touch. And so then fast forward years later, like four or five years later, when my wife and I are sitting down to buy our home and – I thought for sure, my wife had had some uh, financial troubles early in her life. And so I've always had the better credit score. So, whenever we do that stuff, it's always usually coming off mine. And she had since cleared all that up. We spent a lot of time getting that back into shape. And so I thought for sure it was going to be like, oh, my credit score is going to be the one we like uh, figure out. So, basically, when you buy a house, yeah. you used to put down 20%. Now you can put down less and you you buy an insurance that is uh, you take a hit on every month. It's called private mortgage insurance the, until you pay off that equity. And they ran it against mine. And like, my what I was gonna, we're gonna have to pay monthly was gonna be like hundreds, like it was gonna be like $400 worth 70 bucks because of this one Jesus credit hit, And it lasts for seven years. Right. And I was like a year and a half off. And so I explained to the guy he's like, yeah, like you can actually call and like say like, this is sort of bullshit. And uh, he said like most of the time they knock it off. I was like, how would I know that? How would I know there is any recourse? Like, it's not like the... The AT&T or the the, the collections agency is out there being like, by the way, like, if you think this is some garbage, like, you can go get this scrub. Like, there's no way for me to have known that. Now it's gone. Like, it's been seven years. But, like, it was just absolutely wild. We're like, I felt like I went through all the proper steps to, like, snuff out. I felt like I was being a reporter. I was using my actual real-life skills to, like, figure out some bullshit. And still, I got, like, kind of fucked. It worked out fine. We did it with my wife's credit score. It was no big deal. But, like, ugh. Like that's a minor thing over forty five dollars. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, well, that's and that's the frustrating thing. This is something we've talked like again, increasing theme of the show. We live in a country whose regulatory structure is really aimed at opening the gates between ordinary people and hucksters and fraudsters, right? Like that's yeah. that is, and and some of those people are not like low level, <laughs> like they're not they're not low level con artists, right? Like I mean the the show we had a few weeks ago on uh Purdue Pharma's relationship to the opioid like these are extremely well heeled uh like massive uh firms that still operate functionally uh like semi-legitimate enterprises. Uh and we live in a regulatory structure that infrequently does not view as its goal protecting ordinary citizens from those kind of predations. But instead, views as its goal ensuring those people can continue to do business and can continue to get excellent returns on selling bad products to underinformed consumers uh, under terms that are murky at best. And I mean, you just
0: look at look at the way that the you know the Consumer Protection Bureau was like gutted like yep. the moment the Trump administration came in like the like at the the uh, commu- uh, consumer protection bureau was not perfect. But like they were aggr- they were going after payday lenders and like other things that take you know advantage of people in uh, dire circumstances. And it was just like, ah, I mean, those are businesses, though, like <laughs> job creation, a business be business. Yeah. yeah job creation, yeah. small business people.
3: The um the, the the worst thing about all of this really is that many of these scams are targeted to like you already said, people who, who aren't savvy about technology uh, or who are in a position where they already feel threatened or feel like, oh, yeah, of course, someone could call me up and uh you know need me to pay something back or are in a situation where like oh wow this could fix my whole life the famous one of these is the 419 scams which are commonly called the nigerian email scam they're like oh you could be the prince of such and such a place has marked you as Mm -hmm. so all you have to do is pay the fee to get that money transferred to you those are uh this was something that came out early in the 2010s i want to say I wasn't I wasn't like 2013, something like that. There was a, a piece that, that came out or a study that came out that revealed that those are explicitly made designed to be absurd and unlikely. Like so that it auto it auto selected people who would follow through with the rest of the scam, because if they came to you and me and we went like, nah this is clearly fake. We wouldn't pick up the phone and call them. We wouldn't start down the path uh, so that, you know, on step five, we wait a second, this part sounds fishy. It, they were specifically made bad and obviously a scam so that they wouldn't have to, to spend the time working with the people who halfway down the path would eject from it. And only, only the people Smart who saw it were generation. like – yeah, exactly. Yeah. Who are like, hmm, this seems legit, would continue through. And those are the people who need protection because they'll fall for it. Because they don't have the skill set to identify those those things. Um, And, and yeah, I mean, like, I, I want to be clear. Part, part of the reason I'm like, uh, they're often called Nigerian scams is just like, that's a very loaded framing for a lot of that stuff. Uh, and also because there are just as many scammers in suits as there are in, you know, basements on a computer somewhere. You know, like. That scamming is yep. an American pastime at this point. And it's it's as much to do with like what happens to your 401k or if you're lucky enough to have a 401k or what happens with your uh, the interest rate on your school loan or on your home loan or on your discharge troops money to a
1: for-profit college.
3: To- <laughs> yes. Yes. For instance. Or again, payday loans, rena centers like yep. uh, there are so many uh, institutions in our world that are designed to prey on people who need something now and have no other ability to do it or for whom they have been in a, in a precarious position long enough that any any attempted, any, any hope is something they have to jump on because if they don't, they do not know how they will get through the next week or two. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, it's a dire situation out there.
1: But to help you get through the next week or two, uh, we've got... Plenty of podcasting content from Waypoints, uh, and sorry, that segue went wrong. Damn it! <laughs> I got the name of the fucking thing wrong. You just start over, it. kato Just no. <laughs> <We'll laughs> start from here. Take it from here, kato Uh huh. Uh-uh. No delete everything up to a minute ago. Delete the entire show. Delete the whole show. You know what I mean, kato You get me. That'll do it for this week's Waypoints. We hope you've enjoyed the break. Please be sure to rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice, if it allows such a thing. I like to think we're a five-star podcast, but that's for you to say, not me. Uh, We'll be back again with Waypoint Radio this Friday. You should also be sure and listen to our new podcast, Be Good and Rewatch It, where we just sank into the murky waters of Serenity, which looks like one of 2019's biggest bombs and a career low point for Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway. Hope you'll join us for that, and hope you'll join us next week for Waypoints. Uh, But until then, Patrick, where can people find you? At Patrick Klumpik. Austin. Austin
3: underscore Walker.
1: And this podcast is produced, as always, by our producer, Kado who you can find on Twitter at A underscore Cotto underscore Apparates. That's uh, it. <laughs> until then, do not give in to Astonishment.